Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not vain, is not in vain. Thank you very much. Thank you. Amen. There's a lot in those few words, isn't there? There's a therefore. That's got to mean something. There's everybody, brothers and sisters, everybody in the congregation. There's standing. There's standing, not only standing, but standing firmly. There's letting nothing move you or I, all of us. The you there in the Greek is plural. It's to the congregation, not just to individuals. And then always giving ourselves, not just partially or part-time or whenever, but always giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, the Lord's work. Again, a because, therefore, and a because, because you know, you know this. Hopefully you do know this. Hopefully you know it not just in your head, but in your heart, that our labor, our hard work in the Lord, not just for whatever, but for and in the Lord, in his power, in his name, is not in vain. It has meaning, it has substance, it has purpose. It's, it's so much in that verse, we could spend the whole time just talking about it, but it's just going to be our introduction today to the topic of our lesson today, which is the final in our five-part series on what it means to be a great church. Could we go on to the next slide, Victor, if you don't mind, or whoever has the, you do. So a great church is many things, but one of the characteristics of a great church is that it is always toiling to build the church well. To build the church well. I rather like that photograph uh, of all the people swarming all over this building to build it. I'm not sure it would pass all the health and safety rules, <laughs> but uh, it illustrates something rather nicely, does it? Everybody doing something to build the church. And not, in that case, it is a church building, I believe, but we're not talking about a physical building as such. Toiling to build the church well. So we talked about G for God-focused. That's the first characteristic of a great church. The R is relationship-based, and it ties in a lot to what we're going to be talking about today. The E is enabling our children to become Christians. And the A we talked about last time was always free, yet spiritual. We're spiritual in our choices of how we use that freedom in Christ that we've been given. This week, toiling to build the church well. How do you feel about the word toil? I mean, it's not my favorite word in the world. Toiling, to me, carries the connotations of sweat and of aching muscles, of tiredness, and frankly, quite often, doing things I really don't want to do. But in this context, I hope and pray that today we will come away from this with not only an understanding of what it means and why it's important to toil to build the church well, but I hope Every one of us in this room, and online, by the way, hello to you online, all of us watching, listening, or here, I hope and pray that we will all have a desire to toil, to build the church well. That's my hope. What is it that motivates this? Next slide. What motivates it is the resurrection. In the context of this passage, it's about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. The power of God. And we're going to talk more about that at the end, so I'll hold on to that thought for a moment. And the next slide. I really love uh, this verse in Ephesians chapter 3, which talks about what God's made the church for, in a way. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than we all that we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work in us, and in us there, he's not talking about individuals, but again, he's talking to a congregation, in us as a congregation. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and we have an exclamation mark, amen. And you can imagine that being read out and the church saying after, at the end of that, amen. That's what we want. We want God to get glory in the church. And perhaps this is the, the key verse for the whole series of being a, a great church. We're not talking about being a great church like, look, are, are we great? But more, we want to be a church that makes God look great. We want to be a church that enables God to get glory, the glory he deserves. And it's amazing to me that God tells us that one of the key ways he gets glory is in and through his church. Us ordinary people. I know, you're sitting next to somebody who is pretty ordinary, and, uh, well, most of us anyway, <laughs> and, and maybe you feel ordinary, and maybe you're more ordinary than everybody else, I don't really know, but it's ordinary people. The people in the first century were no different to you and me. They really were not. Even Paul, even the Apostle Peter, they really were ordinary people. They, they weren't any different to you and me. God got great glory through them, didn't he? I mean, look at 2,000 years of Christian history, the, the word of God itself, the power of God to transform millions and millions of lives over the years, done through ordinary people in ordinary churches, who nonetheless, despite and perhaps even because of their ordinariness as people and as congregations, somehow gave God glory. And I, I, I hope my ambition here with all of us and our ambition together is to be a kind, the kind of church that does this, that enables this. God gets glory in this church. Yes, the church universal, for sure. But he's writing to the Ephesians in Ephesus, a place, a congregation, a specific time. And surely he would write the same to West Watford. To him be glory in the West Watford, in the church in West Watford. That's what he wants and that's what is possible by God's grace and God's power. So that's what we're talking about and why we're talking about it, because God gets glory in the church. Next, next slide. I'm going to rattle through a few scriptures. Most of them are on the handout. Some of them are not, so you may want to write these down. There are some extra ones on the handout that I'm not going to use today because it's a big topic, so extra things there. And some suggestions for your own personal Bible study, if you'd like to do that as well from the book of 1 Thessalonians, which we will look at a little bit later. But firstly, not all toil is productive, is it? Have you ever worked hard at something and it just fell apart? Um, in fact, an Ikea project. An Ikea project. <laughs> yeah, you think you've got all the screws and, and things in the right place and then it falls apart. Uh, yeah, my neighbor had some of his um, uh, felting on his shed blown over into our garden yesterday because of the wind. He only just put it on and he got blown off straight, you know. Um, so, you know, this kind of thing happens. Not all toil is meaningful, not all toil is rewarded. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, all the Ikea furniture I put up, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Or later on in verse 18, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. <laughs> oh, yes, parents, you're, yeah, you're going to have to leave it all behind. Maybe you won't leave anything behind. It depends how you spend your retirement, doesn't it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Don't, don't count on too much, kids, if you're, you know, 
Who knows what's going to be left behind? But whatever you do leave, leave behind is going to be left behind. You're not going to take it with you. What's the point in that? He says, I even, not only did I become despondent, I actually hated the things. I thought somebody else is going to get this. It's not fair. <laughs> there is meaningless toil. Or the next scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. Paul is saying, I don't want to labor meaninglessly. I want to labor for God purposefully with an aim. That's why we toil to build the church well. We have a noble aim. And therefore we discipline ourselves. We do some things and we don't do other things. We have spiritual freedom, but we use it for God's glory. We toil to build the church well. Because we're not fighting like a boxer, beating the air. We're not running aimlessly. When David's on his runs, he's not running aimlessly. He knows where he's going. And because he's been tra was training for that, uh, that long run he did recently, and it's, there's a purpose to it. There must be a purpose to what we do. Next scripture, next slide, is Psalm 127. There is also unspiritual toiling. There's meaningless toiling. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And the implication is those who love him. There's unspiritual toiling. There's an awful lot of church building that's been done, uh, perhaps by me, perhaps by others, and over Christian history, that has been fruitless. Because it's been done for ego's sake. It's been done for an ignoble aim. It's been done to impress people. It's been done for uh, uh, false motives. This can creep into any congregation and anybody in a congregation. It's got to be the Lord that builds the house. Otherwise it will not stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this next longer passage. Paul tells us that all of our building will be tested. Much like many things have been tested by the wind recently. Uh, there's a different kind of testing that comes to God's house. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation, he says, as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it, and that's true. Often happens, people move on. But each one should build with care. This is toiling to build the church well. But no one can lay any foundation except other than the one already laid. That's Jesus Christ, that's the foundation. If anyone builds on this foundation using, and you've got a choice of material, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light, some kind of day of judgment, day of reckoning. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be, I pray not to be, the kind of person that helps to build a church that is consumed by the next quake that comes, the next shock to the system. I don't want to be the kind of person that gets into the next life with a smell of smoke on me. And I pray none of us do. That we want to build well, not using straw or hay or wood. But at the very least, costly stones and maybe silver and maybe gold. And in the time we have for today's lesson, we don't have time to dig all out of that that we could. We may have to talk about that another time. 
But my encouragement would be to ask us to consider what does it mean for you and I to build with gold, to build with silver, to build with costly stones? Certainly sounds expensive. I think it's going to cost us some things. Not necessarily money, energy, time, and other things, but we'll talk more about that. Hard work alone is not enough, is basically what this is saying. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and um, I would really encourage you to make a personal Bible study of 1 Thessalonians in regard as to the way that Paul thought about building well. I think it's one of those books in the Bible that give us a really good insight into his heart and his approach. And we're going to be dipping into it uh, for the rest of this lesson here. So at the beginning of chapter 1 there, verses 2 and 3, Paul says this to the Thessalonians. And his heart is on display here uh, in this letter in a way that is not always as obvious, perhaps you could say, in some of his other letters. He says, we always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced, your work, the toiling produced by faith, your labor, oh, some more toiling, some more toiling prompted by love, and your endurance, sounds like more toiling, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I remember your toil, your other toil, and the rest of your toil, awful lot of toiling going on, and I remember it, and I know where it came from. It comes from your faith, it comes from your love, and it comes from your hope. You see, this is so significant that what Paul is saying is, it's not that I want you to work hard. I, I congratulate you on working hard for God because it comes from your relationship with God, from your hope in God, from your trust in God, from your faith, from your love, from your hope. It comes from somewhere really deep. This toiling is not just using your own effort, though your effort's involved. It's coming from, it's coming from in your, somewhere in your spirit. Perhaps that's the right way to put it. Your spirit has been transformed and changed by the power of God so that you think like Christ now, not like your old self. doesn't seem to me they resent the toil. doesn't seem to me that they are finding it a burden to, uh, to work, to labor, and to endure. There's something deep motivating them in a powerful, positive way. Somebody said, salvation is always from God, right? In terms of where... Where's our part in work, right? Because we don't get saved by our works. We're not together, work and faith. Salvation is always only from God, but faith is busy. I, I like that. Faith is busy. As in, it, it motivates us. It causes us to live a certain way. It causes us to say, because I have this salvation from God, I'm going to get busy for God. That's what we see here in Thessalonians. Work, labor, endurance. That endurance is not a passive endurance, by the way. Like, well, I'll just, I'm enduring, I'm here, you know, I'm just hanging around. It's not that kind of endurance. The word means the fortitude of a stout-hearted soldier. The kind of person who stands on guard, sentry duty, and you're not getting past it. It's that kind of endurance. Stout-hearted, fortitude of a soldier. See, I think this is why... God focus being, being at the beginning of this series is so significant. Because if we know what inspires us, then the work will flow. If we know the God, then the work for God will flow. And then the work will come. Our next scripture 
later on in chapter 1, I want to give you a bit of an insight into the heart of, of Paul here. In verse uh, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Their faith has become known everywhere. How has it become known everywhere? Because their faith prompted them to work for God, to build for God. They became imitators of Paul in his work, and as a result, they have become worthy of imitation elsewhere. I hope and pray we can be the kind of congregation that others would imitate. Not to say we've got everything damn perfect, I don't mean that, but that we would be a congregation where people would come and say, I think you've, you've nailed something. I would like our congregation to be more like this. It's not a competition, it's not what I mean, but to be an inspiration to others is something that the Thessalonians were congratulated for, and they did by imitating Paul, first and foremost. In the next slide, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul talks about his attitude with the Thessalonians. He says, we were like young children among you. Humble, in other words, I think. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Very intimate. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Real involvement in each other's lives here. This is not just attending congregation services. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, oh, there's the toil word again. Our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging, he defines it here, or describes it, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the example that they imitated. This nursing mother, this, uh, how does it describe the father? As a father deals with his own children. This, this attitude of gentleness, but also helpfulness. An attitude that was intimate, of deep involvement in each other's lives, sharing life together. This was the toil of the Apostle Paul that they imitated and lived out amongst themselves and became a model to so many others. This is the way that he toiled in, in Thessalonica. And it tells us a few things, I think, about what it means to toil to build the church well. Firstly, it means being patient with one another. You can't be a good nursing mother unless you're patient. At least, so I'm told. Uh, you can't be a good father giving out encouragement and comfort and urging unless you are patient with your child. There's patience. If you're sharing life together, it's because you're spending a lot of time together. There's a patience here. In other words, we are building, by God's grace, for the long term, not for next week. We don't make decisions about what we do and our priorities on the basis of what's just going to make life fun for the next few days. We're thinking about a year from now. We're thinking about 10 years from now. We're thinking about the time when Kaiser and Mulligan have as little hair as me, possibly, um, or as much gray hair as Garth, 
or, I mean, I know it's a scary thought for you, but the day will come. And we, we're thinking about maybe 50 years from now, shouldn't we be? I know a lot of us won't be here then. Then, then that should focus us. What can I do now to toil, to build the church well, so that it will be here and be perhaps stronger, more useful to God in 10 years' time, in 40 years' time, when I'm gone. And that's, that's fundamentally a matter of faith. Because a lot of that we won't see. And it tests our hearts as to whether we're doing what we do here for ourselves, because we like it, or whether we're doing it for the future, for people who will benefit long after we're gone. And that's about love and about faith. And we see this in Paul, this patient, long-term building. On the next slide, later on in chapter 2, he says this, But brothers and sisters, get, get his heart here. When we were orphaned by being separated from you, I mean, that's how he's felt. He was there in Thessalonica, then he had to leave. He feels like he's been orphaned. Separated you from a short time, in person, not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Every effort. It, it, it makes me a little ashamed sometimes when I don't have, make the effort to be in touch, you know. I, I mean, he didn't have WhatsApp. <laughs> he didn't have Zoom. How easy it is to be in touch. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. What gets in our way? Is it Satan or is it selfishness? For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You'll be our glory. Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. What a relationship. So here's what I want to sort of finish with, really. If we're God-focused, we will want to build the church well. So if we don't want to build the church well, I suggest the first thing to do is let's fix our relationship with God. And by fix, I don't mean mechanically. I just mean pay attention to it. Find somebody to help you. Pray. Read the scriptures together. If you... If we're struggling with that motivation, then let's start there. Okay? Let's get started there. But if we have that, at least most of the time, I'm not saying every moment of every day any of us is going to feel like toiling to build the church well all the time, but if generally speaking our habit, like the Thessalonians, the habit is to, is to work, to labour, to endure. If that's a habit, then I'll suggest that the primary way in which that manifests itself is in loving one another. It's relationships. It's relationships with people outside in the world who are lost, and it's relationships here. You know, the second part of our great acronym is the R for relationship-based. And I think that's what it's about, really. Because it's like this. It's like the old iceberg um, illustration, right? You know the iceberg where only a little bit point, pokes out above the water, and the majority of it is underneath. What we see in our congregational life is this. This is kind of what we see collectively together, right? We're here, we're sitting here, we're singing songs, we're doing this and that, we're having a chat, we're having a nice cup of coffee, giving us by David, thank you very much later. We're having all that, that's very visible, it's very here, right? 
But that is, for church, for building church, it is the tip of the iceberg. It's not insignificant. It's important. I wouldn't say it's not. It's good to be here. And we need to learn together, sing together, fellowship together, take communion together. We need to do these things together. It's biblical. There's good reasons for it. But it's the tip of the iceberg, the majority of the iceberg. What's hidden and under the water is whether we and how we and the extent to which we are loving one another. It's being together. It's talking together. It's praying together. It's evangelizing together. It's doing Bible studies together with our friends. It's, it's, it's hanging out together. It's getting to know one another. It's finding out our life story, how we became a Christian if we don't already know that. It's finding out what our hopes are, our dreams and our fears and our, our anxieties and our concerns and, and our ups and downs in life and what happened in our childhood and what happened in our adulthood and our work life and our family life and what it's like to be a mother of these children as opposed to these children or a father or, or whoever we are. It's really knowing one another. That's what it's really all about. There's no shortcut to that. There's no shortcut. You can't get there by just being a member of a Facebook page or a WhatsApp thing, and those are good and fine, but that's not how this happens. It doesn't happen just because we turn up here, and it doesn't happen only by turning up here. No matter what our spirit is when we come here, good as it may be, it comes because we spend time together outside of this. We do life together. That's what they did in Thessalonica. It's what Paul did with them, and that's what they did with one another, and it became a model to the rest of the, the, the world around them, all the cities and towns and churches in the area. That's how to do it. That's how to build the church well. It's hard work. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I find relationships hard work. I mean, some aren't hard work. I mean, some are just fun, you know. But truth is, a lot of relationships are hard work, and even the ones that aren't hard work most of the time are still hard work some of the time. Even the best loving marriage or best friends, you know, you still really annoy each other from time to time. And forgiving, forgiving is hard because you want to hold on to some grudge. Forgiveness is hard. If it was easy, there wouldn't be so many commands in the Bible commanding us to do it. <laughs> we just do it naturally, right? Jesus is our inspiration. None of us deserve any forgiveness at all. Not one jot. But his example inspires us to forgive one another. Jesus was patient with those who opposed him, with those who misunderstood him, with those who were lost. Very patient. He invited them to come close to him, spend time with him. He had meals with people like uh, Levi before he became a follower. He spent time around the fishermen. We, if you look at the Gospels, he clearly met them a number of times before he called them to follow. He was patient. We've got to be patient with those we're reaching out to out there in the world. It's about relationship. It's good to invite people to church. It's good. But it's also good to spend time with people who haven't yet come to church. And not only hoping that, you know, if I spend another hour with you, will you then come to church? with me? No, not that. Yes, in the hope that one day want to come and find out about God, but we do it for love. That's toiling to build the church well. It's really about relationships. I don't have time now, but I'll just reference um, Romans 16 for the moment, just to say, have a look at the way Paul talks about his co-workers in Romans 16. He worked together with so many people, including many women, of course. Is it, I think a third of the people mentioned in Romans 16 are women. And they appear to have been people that are co-workers with Paul, which is quite remarkable in that culture when women were you know, pretty much in the back room, kept quiet. He talks about these women as co-workers, indicating at least in part that everybody has a place. Men, women, doesn't matter. Everybody has a part to play in building the church. Every one of you in this room today has a part. No matter how you're exactly feeling right now about what I'm saying, you do have potentially a part to play in toiling to build the church well. 
Romans 16, another good Bible study is to go through the New Testament and look at the way Paul talked about his fellow workers like Philemon and Timothy and Titus and Epaphras and so many others working together. It's all about relationships, doing life together, doing God's ministry work together. Toiling alone gets pretty miserable after a while. Toiling together can be a joy. Could we figure out how to toil together a bit more? Whenever I look out uh, on this group and I see Michael back there, Michael Adiko, uh, it always warms my heart uh, to remember back to the times when Akin uh, was, uh, and you, Michael, were doing Bible studies together. As you were figuring out, you know, your spiritual life and, and figuring out what it meant to be a Christian. And uh, Akin rang me one day and he said, uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing his Bible study with, with Michael and, uh, and uh, he's, he's really difficult. Could you come and help? No, he didn't say that. No, he didn't say that. No. But he invited me over and uh, Akin did, did all the work really. But I remember sitting down in Akin's room in Pinner at the time and, and the three of us talking and, and opening the Bible and what a joy that was. It was time out of my life. And Akin's life, and your life, right? It was time away from our families and our children. It was time away from other things we might rather have done. I seem to remember there was at least one time when Arsenal were on TV, and rather than watch the match, we were actually doing Bible study, which is a serious, serious commitment <laughs> from, from Akin, I must say. Um, if you know Akin. So, but it was a joy. And I went, I went home from those Bible studies with more energy than when I came. And we felt that, haven't we? When you served, whether it's doing that kind of thing, a Bible study with someone to help them become a Christian, whether it's praying together with somebody in a tough spot, or just listening and talking and bringing Christ with you into a situation, or whether it's serving by helping something, somebody with something practical. Uh, Penny and I did some babysitting for Charlotte Bromwell recently, looking after Raph and, uh, and, uh, and, and Zach. And it was exhausting. Yeah, it was exhausting. I was shattered. I was weird. We were with from about four till about, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night or something. And it was exhausting. But I went home with, with joy in my heart. Toiling, toiling together can be a joy. Toiling together for God can be a joy. It's all about the investment that's hidden and unseen from everybody else. It's about the part of the iceberg under the water. It's the only way for churches to be built well. What could you do? What's your part in this? Or more practically, what could you do this week? And you may say, well, I'm not ready for this. And I would acknowledge that sometimes it's hard to know whether you're ready. And if that's the case, then please pray. And maybe talk to me or somebody and say, how can I get ready to serve, to give, to toil, to build the church well? Let's have a chat about it. There's no such thing, ultimately, as a passive church member. We're either building or we're hindering. I know that sounds rather threatening, and I hesitate to say it quite like that. And there are ex exceptions to everything I say, of course. But I think we need to take seriously the idea that God has something for you to do, and me to do, something for all of us to do, that could bring him glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The only thing that counts in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith through love. What's that next slide, Victor? I can't remember what's on there. There it is. Okay. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself 
through love. In a congregational setting, that is. That's to the Galatians as a congregation. Same thing for us. Faith expressing itself through love. So to wrap up, and then we'll take bread and wine together. Can I have that next slide? To go back to where we began at the end of 1 Corinthians, let me remind us of the motivation for all of this. A bit earlier to the passage we read earlier, um, death has been swallowed up in victory. This is about the cross and the resurrection. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not in vain. It's because of what Jesus is doing. We have and share in the victory because of Christ's labor on the cross. His toiling to get to the cross. His endurance on the cross. His humility to go there for our sake means that the church could be built and built well. What he did means that we have this opportunity. And we're going to take uh, bread and wine in just a moment in these little capsules to remind us of the body and the blood of Christ, of his flesh and his blood, to remind us that he did that for us. He did that to strengthen us. He did that to inspire us. Well, he did that because he loved us. It's always about relationship in the end. And because of his love for us, we are then empowered and inspired to go and love others in the world and in this body, toiling to build the church. Thank you.